Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at the Long Now Foundation. Today's talk features a longtime friend of Long Now, Adam Rogers. Adam is the senior tech correspondent at Insider, a former senior correspondent at Wired, and a New York Times bestselling author. The last time he spoke at Long Now, he gave the first salon talk here at The Interval, Long Now's cocktail bar and library in San Francisco. His talk was a fitting choice to inaugurate The Interval's talk series. He spoke about the 10,000-year story of alcohol and human civilization. In his return to Long Now, he's going to tell us an even older story, the story of color, our perception of it, and how it has shaped society through time. But before we begin, a quick thank you. The Long Now Foundation is entirely supported by donors and members. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of Long Now and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. In order to help tell the story of color in all its many shades, we'll be weaving in another talk from the dearly departed biological anthropologist Peter Warshall, who spoke about the co-evolution of light, life, and color on Earth in O2012. With all that in mind, let's welcome Adam Rogers to hear about the science of color and the modern human perception. Thank you, Xander. It's really, it's good to be back. Uh, I want you to picture in your mind the quintessential yellow. So not an object, not a yellow thing, not a lemon, but just yellow, not orangey, not greenish, yellow. Okay, you got it? Now, I don't know if this is it for you. This is how a lot of computers code like yellow, yellow. And of course it'll look different on every screen because nobody calibrates the colors of their screens and all screens are different. All things being equal though, and this is a little bit weird, the yellow that you would pick as perfect, as quintessential, if somebody shined a light and gave you the controls of the dials to pick a perfect yellow is probably very, very close to what another person would pick. Of course, all things are never equal. We measure color in a lot of ways, saturation, brightness, intensity, and those metrics vary from place to place and time to time when we talk about color. Let's try another warm up. Now I want you to picture your perfect green. So not bluish, not yellowish, green. Okay, you got it? Now here's a weird thing. The green in your head right now is almost certainly not the green that someone else would think of or would pick as their quintessential green. People vary by a lot. If you shine, do that thing where you shine the light in their face and let them control the dials, it'll vary by as much as 60 nanometers if describing colors by their wavelength is your thing. This is a good green. <laughs> it's fine. Um, it's a little yellow for me, actually. But an important question to ask here, I think, is why would this green not be your perfect quintessential green? Because the blue-green region of what scientists call a color space, the entire multi-dimensional range of colors and variations in colors possible and perceivable, is a brutal place. It is a weirdish wild space. Now, partially, this is because of how your eyes and brains work. Partially, it's a function of your personal experience, of philosophy, of language, of all the green lights you've ever seen, every traffic signal, every green field of England, every blade of grass, every incredible hulk. Color is physics. Color is culture. You probably remember something from elementary school called primary colors. And the idea of those is that you could have specific colors or really, and we'll talk more about this too, specific names for colors that we agree upon. 
and then somehow try to understand how those colors mix and come together to form all the other colors, because of course color is a continuous sort of curve or waveform, I guess. There's red, yellow, blue, those are the primary colors I was taught. There's red, green, blue, those are the primary colors your computer was taught. There's the Munsell primary colors, which is a system of organizing color. This sort of unifies them all for comparison's sake. You can see how different they are. Around the outside is what Isaac Newton called the spectrum. The middle ring are the artist's primaries and secondaries. And the inner ring are the additive colors, red, green, blue, shine light, put those together, they mix and form other colors, and the subtractive or reflective colors that you'd find in a pigment, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, CMYK. History is littered with the rubble of attempts to put colors into some kind of order, to make them behave so that printers and painters and dyers and weavers and digital animators and artists of all sorts um, and people every day can use them, can take this mysterious but ubiquitous feature of the universe and turn it into something that we change, that we transform and that transforms us into a technology. So here's the hypothesis. When we talk about color, we are actually talking about three separate but related and overlapping things. So first is color that happens without us. The tree falls in the forest, it's green even if we're not there to see it tumble. That's physics, chemistry, the oscillation of electromagnetic fields moving in a direction. Electromagnetic energy streaming from the sun, hitting Earth's atmosphere, interacting, hitting other surfaces and particles, light. 1.21 sextillion photons hitting every square meter of Earth's sunlit surface every second. Color is something that we make. Colored things by dint of our hands and our effort and our cognitive abilities. Roman purple, Egyptian blue, mauve. Colors that didn't exist on Earth or anywhere in the universe. I mean, you know, maybe. Until human ingenuity makes use of all that physics and chemistry to make them happen. Usually we call these things pigments. These are things that absorb some colors of light and reflect others, presenting a color to our eyes. The image that you see there are, are, are jugs full of quantum dots. Eventually those are gonna be part of LED TVs. This is arguably one of the most advanced way people make colors today. And third, there's the color that our eyes and brains manufacture from those other two things. Light all around us bounces off or through or among surfaces into our eyeballs, where hideously complicated biological sensors transduce photons into neuroelectrical signals. The image that you see now is uh, Ramoni Cajal's hand-drawn map of a mammal's retina. That comb-looking part up at the top uh, are the rods and cones. Those are the photoreceptors at the back of the retina that perceive light and color. This is Isaac Newton's original spectrum um, with colors added later. He didn't draw the colors in when he did it. Famously in 1665, he goes on the run from the plague and hides out at his mother's house, closes up the shutters of the study he's working in, pokes a hole in the wall, sunlight comes in, he lets that sunlight go through a then relatively new optical technology called a prism and sees on the opposite wall, colors splayed out in a line. The eyes and the brain don't perceive the same world of color that the universe creates. What we think of as color is like all the other senses, just an approximation. So. That first way of looking at things. This is gonna be familiar to you. This is the electromagnetic spectrum. Colored light is in one sense, just the teensiest part of the, the physics that surrounds it. And this sort of makes sense why it's that narrow band, because we're using uh, meat sensors to perceive it. Longer wavelengths uh, would cook those meat sensors and shorter wavelengths would ionize them into little balls of cancer. We humans call anything between about 380 nanometers and about 750 nanometers, we call that stretch visible light. Those are colors to us. So you can see here that the peak spectra of the three of them that most human beings have in their eyes, people call those red, green, and blue, or short, medium, and long wavelengths. But you can see that the peaks aren't well distributed and the tails overlap. This is like everything else in our meat suits, an evolutionary kludge. And in some humans, one or two of them doesn't work. Some rare humans have a whole other, 
one of them in there in between the green and the blue. They are tetrachromats uh, as opposed to most of us trichromats. Um, but the wavelengths it responds to still fall inside the range of what we tend to call visible. But look at this, birds. Birds are tetrachromats. They see colors way down into the ultraviolet. And bees, they're trichromatic like us, but they don't even bother with red. They're seeing the green and the blue and then ultraviolet. The natural world positively glows to these other animals. We can't even begin to imagine. I mean, we can begin to imagine, but we don't see what they see. They have other colors. And look at this show off. This is a mantis shrimp, 12 photoreceptors into the UV and near infrared, jerks. I mean, now, except for the colors out on the edges, uh, most scientists don't actually think that the mantis shrimp sees more colors than humans. It might not discriminate among a zillion where we only do a kajillion or something like that. It does do it faster, the connections between those receptors and, and what, what passes for a brain in a mantis shrimp. I'm not trying to be offensive, but you know, mantis shrimp. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that color is quite literally in the eye of the beholder. What colors we see depend on our, our biology. The cones sensitive to long, middle, and short wavelengths all do something called quantum catch. They're kind of adding up the number of photons they're receiving at the energy levels that they're sensitive to. This is a function of the proton structures around them responding to that energy. They aren't just sending red, green, and blue signals back into the brain. They're combining their signals with each other and with other kinds of neural, other kinds of neurons adjacent to them and other kinds of cells that are helping that process, doing complicated calculations within the eye. They're also doing overall number of photons to calculate brightness or intensity because the amount of light and dark is part of the way we perceive color. Um, and then that all reaches back. You can see in this diagram, those two circles at the top there are, are eyeballs. Everything else is brain. And once you get into the brain, what you would love to say is like, oh, well, there's like a part for red and a part for blue and a part for green, but no, it's not like that at all. The parts of the visual cortex may or may not map to specific colors, perceptions of colors. The neuroscience community has been arguing about this for decades. We don't even, really know completely why we or anything else sees color at all. Clearly it's some kind of information. Clearly it's evolutionary, evolutionarily useful. Part of the answer might be here. If you're local to Long Now, you might recognize the salt ponds at the southern edge of the San Francisco Bay. Those colors come, at least in large part, from salt-loving extremophile microbes called halobacteria. Halobacteria aren't bacteria at all. Uh, they are members of the kingdom Archaea the oldest life on earth, three or four billion years old, obviously they do not see. They don't have eyes. They are six microns long. They have color, which means they have pigments, lots in fact. And they also know how to avoid blue light and swim toward orange, which is weird because again, no eyes. So halobacteria have a protein uh, called bacteria rhodopsin. They're using it not to perceive light, but as a proton pump. Um, they basically, they turn light into energy. But the thing is that while the overall structure of the protein is pretty close to ours, the individual amino acids that make up that protein are different. It's like uh, making the same spaceship with different Legos. So no one knows for sure if our color vision evolved from their color vision, or if color vision is so evolutionarily valuable that, that evolution just comes up with it again and again and over time the same approach with different structures. Nobody knows. It's good for something. And we humans keep making our own colors to feed our appetite for it. This is uh, Blombos Cave. It's on the coast of South Africa. It's been the location of a bunch of really exciting archeological finds over the years. Some of the first ornamental beads, one of the first drawings the human beings ever made. Between 10 and 20 meters down, about 100,000 years old, the archeologists who worked that cave found something remarkable. These are abalone shells. In the one on the right, you can see a little rock down at the bottom and it's 
uh, sort of molded to the shape of the inner surface, the, the nacreous substance on the inside of the shell. And you'll see also some reddish color there. That's ochre and iron oxide. These are tools for grinding that ochre down, for mixing it with, they found samples of what's called trabecular bone, like you'd find on the spine. It's sort of fat and marrow and cartilage, porous and gooey. These are tools to mix all that together and make a pigment to turn ochre into a paint. It's the oldest known example of human beings taking a natural material and turning it into colored stuff they can use. The archeologists who found them led by a researcher named Christopher Henschelwood called these toolkits. Blombos was a workshop for making color technology. But by the time you have people painting, for example, the insides of the caves at Lascaux in the south of France, tens of thousands of years after what was going on at Blombos, you have a pretty wide palette. Now this isn't obviously enough of a gamut to depict the entire natural world, but there's a lot of color there. You've got the ochres, there's some coppery stuff for green, the blacks are magnesium and carbon, like soot, that's easy because you've got fires. And sometimes you'll have something almost always calcium carbonate based for white. And it's enough to make some really striking image uh, like these. These are from the simulated Lescaux cave that the French built just outside the real cave. But you can also ask, could the people who painted it also have had other pigments? And the answer is yes. Maybe they had a blue made from flowers or something. We know because they were humans that they saw color like we do. We don't know if they made colors like we do. I mentioned the color white a second ago. People actually argue about whether white is a color or not, an achromatic, something without color. One eminent color scientist called it this though, the mother of all hues. To some extent, the history of the way human beings have interacted with color has been a steady or a punctuated progress of having more and more pigments and more and more ways of making things have colors. But throughout all that time, one of the most steadfast principles, you have to have something to make white, something to be a substrate that you can put other colors against, something that when you mix it can either make those colored things lighter or give them more opacity or make them brighter. So that essentially has been having a, to have a white pigment. It's, white is one of the bases of the axis that you can measure um, colors and brightness by. It's been omnipresent in coloring Roman buildings in the same era that it was making ceramic in the Tang dynasty. It was also became the basis for makeup that women there would wear all the way up through uh, those famous pictures of Queen Elizabeth with the sort of white cake on her face. That was all white. People really vibe on white stuff though. Calcium carbonates include things like lime and also kaolin, which is the mineral that make ceramics and fine porcelain possible. People have tried to make white pigments out of all kinds of stuff, in fact. Partially, that's because you need it to mix with other pigments to lighten them and brighten them and make them more opaque. But white's actually tricky because where most pigments, as I said, absorb some wavelengths and reflect others, white has to reflect pretty much all of them, but not back the way they came because that would be a mirror, basically. White is organized disorganization. Uh, refracts every wavelength, every which way. For something to be white, the particles inside it have to scatter all wavelengths equally and efficiently. Water droplets suspended in air are very good at this, that's clouds. Uh, protein and fat suspended in water is very good at this. That's milk. For most of human history though, the big white was this, lead white. It was a component of makeup. It was a component of house paints. It was a thing that artists use. Of course, lead white was also scary because it was hugely toxic and everyone knew. They knew since ancient Rome how toxic this stuff was. So much so because there was so much use of it uh, in the 19th century for industrial uses and for paint because everybody wanted their world to have nice colors that the hazards of it had been become the incentive to invent the entire field of occupational safety. It was a mess, which means the world was open to a replacement. In the late 1800s, an engineer named Auguste Rossi came from Italy to New York and he made kind of a business out of understanding titaniferous ores, especially because people were trying to mine iron out of the Adirondacks and make steel and that was like 25% titaniferous. So 
At that point, most people thought that the way you would make good steel out of something like that was to take the titanium out. But in 1908, Rossi noticed that the chemical process he was using to purify titanium produced as one of its intermediate steps a fine, brilliant white powder. He mixed it with salad oil and famously brushed it across a piece of paper. This was a big moment. Rossi knew about the dangers of lead and he understood the hegemony of the national lead conglomerate that was selling the stuff in paint. So he and his partner added a new business line, titanium dioxide pigment. And it's the basis for all kinds of paints and coatings. It has a huge refractive index. It's opaque and it's bright. You find it even coatings and paints of other colors. It's the, it's the main ingredient in a lot of those paints. You also find it in coatings of pills, some kinds of paper, almost every cosmetic in your medicine cabinet, uh, sometimes in the white sugar powder on supermarket powdered donuts, because it's relatively inert, it used to be an Oreo filling. It's a multi-billion dollar industry internationally, it drives a huge amount of business. The bright colors of modern art of the industrial age, of streamlined modern, that's this, this stuff. And it, it's it really, it's everywhere even today, sprinkles and Sudafed and toothpaste. This was all part of what one historian has called the chromatic revolution. Uh, in order to make products seem new and modern, they took on new colors. and. Uh, that started a kind of um, a, a interrelationship, a dynamic where uh, new technologies would create new colors and those new colors would inspire people to create new technologies back and forth. Even though there's some kind of crass capitalism involved there, the, the, the transition <laughs> in, a, in a really weird, but I think real way of, uh, of Dorothy walking from Kansas into Oz of a world that goes from being not black and white or sepia tone, because of course that's just the way people now will think about it because we're influenced by the way the movies look, but, uh, but colors that were more likely to fade and that were more likely to be earth tones into something vivid and vibrant um, that we think of as, the, as the, the 20th century and now the 21st. And it was titanium dioxide, really that was one of the things that made that possible. What didn't exactly change though, um, and what's still kind of unclear is how we talk about those colors. This is changing direction a little bit, but. I wanna ask you another question. Do you see the color blue in this painting? This is the painting Athena appearing to Odysseus to reveal the island of Ithaca by Giuseppe Botani. It's a depiction of a scene from Homer's Odyssey. Those stories, or rather one specific read of those stories, sparked a, a tremendous controversy that an increasingly colorful world only made worse. Does everyone see the same colors if they don't have names for them? Or read that differently. What do you call the colors between the ones you know the names of? And what does that say about you and your culture and about how the brain works? Because color is a really good way to understand linguistics, which makes it a really good way to try to understand cognition. In 1858, uh, 10 years before this guy became prime minister of England, he wrote a book called Studies on Homer and the Homeric Age. He pointed out that Homer never used a word that meant blue or green in the original. Sure, the sea might be wine dark and dawn might be rosy fingered, but like, what does that even mean? Gladstone had a hypothesis. The ancient Greeks, he said, didn't see color like we do. They didn't say blue because they couldn't see blue. Uh, that's nonsense, of course. They were humans, they had human eyeballs and brains, they didn't lack the blue photoreceptor or have different eyes that function differently than ours. And you know, maybe the ocean wasn't blue, maybe it was green or black. But most translators today agree that the Greeks were using color words just differently. Those were colors that meant something to them that had what scientists call salience. Um, you remember those color orders that I showed you? Plato's version of that went from white to black. And one of the primaries that he used was translated roughly to like sparkling or brilliant. That was a specular illumination. That specular look was something that they valued. So that may be what the wine dark sea was all about. Um, still though, you know, the idea that some people, you know, 
other kinds of people didn't see color as well as like nominally civilized colonialists did. That was a pretty sticky idea. So Grant Allen thought that he would test it out. Uh, Allen was actually one of the inventors of both science fiction and detective fiction. Um, but Allen tried a cool experiment. He sent letters to, as he said, missionaries, government officials, and other persons working among the most uncivilized races. Not above a bit of casual racism was our grant. He sent those all over the world, asking those people to ask the locals a bunch of questions. And the answer at the end basically was, yeah, they all see the same colors. They don't all have the same names, and sometimes they don't have some names for colors at all. But if you teach people the name in a different language, they pick that right up. People were seeing the same colors, they just didn't call them the same thing. It had something more to do with culture than with biology. This was all anecdotal, of course. What all this eventually led up to in the 20th century was a, a, a mutation idea into what's now called linguistic relativism. Sometimes this is called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis after a Harvard linguist named Edward Sapir and an autodidactic fire investigator, self-taught linguist named Benjamin Whorf. And the, the most simplistic version of the idea, even defining this as controversial, but just work with me, is that the things that you have words for in your head are a limit on what you can actually think of and about. Language is thought. Like I said, color is a very good tool for thinking about language. So you can test this or you can try. In the 1960s, two linguists, Brent Berlin and Paul Kay, had noticed in their fieldwork that some languages had fewer basic color words, things like yellow and green, like I asked you to imagine up at the top, that didn't mean anything other than a color than other languages did. Some languages had fewer than others. Why? They decided to do a more rigorous version of what Alan had tried to do with his letters. What Berlin and Kay tried to do was ask people basically which colors are which, what they're called, which ones are subcategories, what names do you have, and so on. And the crazy thing is they found a pattern. They found that all languages develop color terms in a specific order, they said. First, they start with white and black, then they'll include a red, then you get either a green or a yellow, then you get both, then you get blue, and so on. It turned out to be pretty wrong. Under fire for potentially some racial assumptions and also because they talked to people who were bilingual so the languages would be overlapping and a bunch of other things, they tried it again, they went big. They went not to bilingual speakers in the California Bay Area but to informants around the world, dozens of different languages and places and they found that what was going on was much more complicated and mannered, that languages tended to separate their color spaces into light colors and dark colors and then develop more words as needed from there. What we're talking about here is something called categorical perception. It's the ability to distinguish among stuff and name that stuff. So having words for things really does matter. Um, this is just a small example, but Russian speakers have two basic color terms for blue. Um, they have a, a light blue and a dark blue. I won't try to pronounce those because my Russian is, I don't have any Russian. Um, uh, so whereas we just have blue, they have two. If you show people uh, those colors and then uh, one of the other ones, so a triangle test, two of one color, one of the others, um, Russian speakers are faster at telling you whether the third one is the same or different than the others, than English speakers are. The hypothesis there being, the idea being that if you have the words for it, then you can see it more quickly. You can think about it more quickly. What you'd really like, though, if you wanted to try to separate cultural and linguistic influences on color perception from like innate biological categorical perception of color, you would want something that could see like a human, but didn't have language. So I recommend one of these. Uh, this one is mine from many, many years ago, so, and you can't have that specific one, but something like this. And seriously, no, th for real, this works. You do what Anna Franklin at the University of Sussex did. You strap some four-month-olds into car seats and make them look at colors. Because babies, if they see something unfamiliar, they look at it for longer. It's kind of the basic tool in 
developmental psychology. And you can tell what categories they distinguish between and which ones they don't. If something they haven't seen before, they look at it longer. If they've seen it before, it's already in a category, then they look at it for shorter. Uh, Anna Franklin tried this and found at the end, basically, that babies see red, green, blue, yellow, and purple. Before language, these are the categories of color. But what are the categories for? What do they mean? In 2017, a couple of researchers, Ted Gibson, who's an information theorist at MIT, and Bevel Conway, who's a color vision researcher at the NIH, and sort of my guru in all of this, um, they tried the same kind of show the colors game with speakers um, that the Berlin and K folks had tried with native speakers of English, Spanish, and Chimane, which is an indigenous language in South America. This shows which modal terms or basic color words the speakers of each language used for Munsell chips. It shows that Chimane had fewer words, fewer speakers had modal terms for those colors than Spanish or English did. Um, but then they tried something new. They played a sort of guessing game. They would take the color chips and try to see how long it took people in each language to describe a given chip, to explain which one they meant to a person they were talking to. And the idea was that if you had fewer words to do this, if it took less time to do it, that meant that the color was somehow more information efficient in the language that you were speaking. So these are from the top to bottom, different languages, English at the top, then Spanish speakers, then Chimane speakers, um, and right to left, information efficiency. Uh, it doesn't really matter which specific colors do which, because you can see what the overall divide is there. You can see that there's a division between what someone who's an artist like Conway is would call warm colors and cool colors. So there's roughly the same difficulty conveying the idea of the same colors, but in both colors in the warm, longer wavelengths are the ones that, uh, that are more efficient. Why are they more salient? You can tell as many evolutionary just so stories about that as you want, but this is sort of clear proof that at least they are somehow. Okay, so what's next? That's how we make colors and think about colors now a little bit, but because of that relationship between technologies for making colors and thinking about them, this is all changing. A couple of years ago, I went to a lab at MIT, researchers named Liang Shi and Michael Fauché. Uh, they work with a 3D printer to try to basically forge paintings, uh, not for criminal reasons, but what they're trying to do is print paintings that look indistinguishable from the originals, no matter what color light you look at them under. Now that's a big deal. The way the eye and brain remap the colors that we're seeing to account for the color of the surface, the thing that we're looking at, but also the color of the ambient illumination is a, is a vast mystery. Nobody really knows how the brain does it. And what they wanted to do was create a, a printout, essentially, of, a, of an image that would look the same under the same kinds of different lights as the original. So to do it, they kind of reached back into the past. They took a process called half-toning, putting little dots of color next to each other to make color printing. That's how color printing works. Familiar if you're a fan of comic books or magazines or neo-impressionism. But instead of limiting themselves to cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, the classic colors of magazine publishing, they added a bunch. Bunch of pigments, red, green, blue, violet, orange, even a titanium white, of course. They used a machine learning algorithm and told it to look at colors that it saw in the world and figure out how they changed in our different illumination and then come up with print the same colors that the originals. They were able to pull it off almost completely. That's an original on top and then the copies are below. Basically every scanned pixel of the original gets a, a three-dimensional um, like hyperspectral reflectance map that the computer then recreates with pigments and the 3D printer, multiple layers of 3D printer. Now there's some kind of color physics going on there that figures out how light interacts with surfaces, but nobody knows what that physics is. She and Fauché don't know. They left it to the machine algorithm, so they don't know how it works either. The computer is able to make fake colors that nobody else knows how to make somehow, and nobody has yet asked the computer. One of the things that the color scientists that I talked to were most excited about uh, were the possibilities less of like 
high resolution screens and more of wider gamuts. So the color gamut is what colors are able to be shown by a screen. And the idea isn't that you'd be able to show colors that people can't see, but to capture more colors that they do see out in the world. So right now, if you have a, a screen with a too narrow a gamut and you try to show a sunset, let's say, you won't, it, it'll, it'll, it'll like cover up the colors that it can't depict. So everything will just look like the same yellow instead of a bunch of yellows and golds, let's say. Um, so a, a color gamut, a wider color gamut is part of what new and oncoming uh, standards in um, high definition TVs and digital televisions will have. But they were actually more excited about high dynamic range. Dynamic range is a different axis in color space. It's the light to dark axis, not the, not the colors, the actual hues. And if you can increase that axis, if you can make the dark super dark and the bright super bright, you can show more colors, you can expand the gamut. But also some people think that you can even get more um, like emotional range. There's a, a researcher at Dolby who studies neuroscience as well as how to make better screens. And she says that if you have really, really super high dynamic range and you like look at fire, for example, that your, your skin will respond as if you're seeing heat. Um, Pixar animators use uh, the six primary color laser projectors of Dolby high definition digital cinema and the ultra high dynamic range ramp from bright, bright white to black, black, black. Um, and they're doing experiments with inducing after images using really bright colors to induce the after image that's the complement of a color so that you'll see colors that aren't really there. Uh, more colors and colored things are still coming. Um, every time people learn new color science, they used to make new color technology. Like uh, these are all samples for possible paints for cars. Um, and uh, the way you do this is um, you include in the paint uh, mica, little flakes like cornflakes, and they reflect light in different directions and different amounts of light in different ways. So you get the sort of, when you move around the car, you see it's red over here and green over there. Um, but mica actually um, comes with a lot of impurities. So they're, they're trying to um, use artificial synthetic mica, maybe vantablack, nanoscale, nanostructure black, that's the blackest black ever known, um, or maybe what you see here. This is uh, work from the researchers Jingyu Park and Ben Rogers at Harvard. These are structural colors. They're not made from traditional pigments at all. They're, they're nanoscale structures, tuned beads of styrofoam actually, uh, that reflect light mechanistically rather than chemically. I don't know if you're, if you're an entomology fan, but a lot of beetles have really extraordinary carapaces. They're, the armor that they have, some of them is really specular. It looks like metal glowing. Um, and there's one called the Cyphocalus. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. That's ultra bright white. Uh, brighter even than titanium dioxide is. And it does that um, not because there's any white pigment in it, but because the, the way that the nanoscale, the way its armor is structured. And after that, I, uh, I don't know, because of course no color is impossible. There's no missing shade of blue. Even if the ones that we can see are limited by our own biology and our own neurology, the colors that we can make are probably not. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. That was fantastic. And I'm really glad that you're able to join me here at the Interval in San Francisco for some live questions. Welcome. Thank you. I'm always happy to be at the Interval. It's nice to be back. Excellent. Well, this is a fantastic talk and I love how kind of first principle it is. And it, you showed you know, a lot of history of color wheels and this science is littered by the bodies of people who tried to create the ultimate color wheel. But what, how, how far do color wheels go back? What is the oldest one that we know? Well, so a lot of theorists, you know, back as far as Plato, certainly tried to come up with an order, putting the color in order. The oldest one, there's a wonderful book called Color Ordered 
by a researcher named Rolf Hooney. I may be pronouncing his name. I apologize. Um, and the oldest one that he identified is actually a, a circle of, of vials of liquid that are different, that are either from clear through yellow to dark brown. And what they are are different color, or urine. He's, it's, it's doctors <laughs> using this color wheel to identify like, well, how sick is this person? That's really dark brown. This brain. Our friend is pretty sick. The thing I like about that the most is that to make it work, you have to have uh, these glass vials, you know, around basically what, what we call a boiling flask now in the lab, like the, the, the same kind of thing that's hanging up here at the interval, a lot of them, the people's personal vials. And those are the same kind of vials that enabled Arab scientists in the Abbasid period to start to figure out how spectrum and how spectrum and rainbows work. So before Newton, that they were able to use to watch how light reflected through those before they had prisms to try to figure out that, oh, different, you know, that light maybe refracts differently depending on what wavelength. We don't know what wavelength is, but there's different kinds of light that refract differently. Maybe that's how rainbows work. It was, the, it was that kind of work that led up to what Newton was finally able to do in the 1600s. Oh, very cool. All right. Well, welcome on uh, Kevin Kelly, who is the founding editor of Wired, as well as one of the founders of Long Now and where, at Wired, where you work. Welcome, Kevin Kelly. It's great to be here. Adam, I love your book and your talk. It's really great to have something that we take for granted kind of exploded and revealed to be as amazing as it is once we examine it. And you've done a great job in explaining that. There was a couple of questions from listeners. One, Jim Jenkins from YouTube says, is there a simple way to tell if a human is a tetrachromatic Super, you know, I mean, like, is there a test to, to tell well, whether you have this uh, fourth kind of cone? How do they test it? That's a really good question. Uh, you know, I wonder if they're... <sighs> See, the problem is there's so much individual variation already. So that if you went and got like the whole range of Munsell blues and put them down in front of you and me, we'd probably, there are probably some, that I think I'm just trichromatic, but probably like I wouldn't see a difference and you would too. So it's hard to do that kind of test without doing sort of the straight ahead genotyping. There must be a test, I, I, I feel dumb about this not knowing this, but there, there must be a test that you, like you should be able to go and get. Isn't one of the home genome tests, tests actually called color? You would think maybe they would. But, but there must be some people who have maybe a more refined ability to discern colors that an ordinary person might not notice the difference between for sure and this is this is actually one of the places where the color book overlaps with the booze book um, because one of the things that research into people who are master sommeliers so people who are very good at identifying wines where they're from and how they taste and all these fine grade variations research into what sommeliers are able to do often says that they they don't actually have a better sense of taste or smell than what I might have as an untrained sort of just person who likes wine, but they have a lot more words to describe the things mm. that they are smelling and tasting. And they can use those to apply to what they're doing. And then that gives them a, a greater range of, a greater descriptive range, um, which is great. It's one of the reasons why when you go wine tasting, it's probably a good idea to not get the tasting words first before you taste something, get the tasting notes after, because it's really easy to incept people with those mm -hmm. tasting notes, right? You can say like, you're gonna taste the blackberry in this and suddenly you taste the blackberry. Sure. Okay, so that's true in Somalia. I, I think that's also true in, in brilliant artists or in people who are textile designers mm -hmm. or people who are doing mosaic work, that they may have a much, they'll have a greater sensitivity to their possible range and have more words to describe them. And that mm -hmm. gives them more, more access, more access to being able to see these are different colors that I can describe. So mm -hmm. it's, it is possible that I might be able to see like, yeah, I guess those two blues are different, but that's mm -hmm. just blue. I don't, have a, I don't have a way to say that they're different or they're so close that I don't even notice that they're different until someone comes around and says like, actually that one's a, a little bit more gray. And then I go, oh, mm -hmm. 
right, of course it is. I didn't, I didn't have access to it. And that's why the linguistics and cognitive research in color is so interesting because it can kind of at least begin to reveal and get it. Sure. Kind of so you spent uh, a long time working on this book. Has doing the research, did it change how you saw the world or how you saw color personally? Did it, did it impact you and change your mind from even when you first started writing it? By a lot. I actually, I had a little bit of um, dorm room, like existential crisis for a while, where um, especially after doing research on the on the dress, that whether you know whether people saw it blue or white, and and you talk to enough of those folks, and they, and they'll you get to the end of these interviews, and, and you'll and you kind of go, yeah, but it was blue though, and they sort of go, look, it's 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 charming that you think there's any such thing as an objective color. But there really isn't. It's just surfaces and the way they interact with, you know, with the quantum nature of the universe. And after hearing that enough times, you start to walk around looking around like, oh, man, none of it's real. Like, <laughs> it's all just a surface with photons bouncing off of it, which I finally like that'll keep you up at night. I mean, I, I was starting to like really sort of get a little nervous about that. And like, no, it's you got to just own the fact that you're that our think meat makes a world for us and we live in it and that's okay. It's not just, I'm not, I didn't, I didn't degrade into horrible solipsism. My partner at home is a weaver. We have a lot of looms and a lot of fiber and a lot of textile in our house. And I have a, a vastly greater appreciation for the, for that mm -hmm. work, especially because, and th there are a lot of ways that weaving and textiles prefigure a lot of the kind of math that computer scientists do now. But one mm -hmm. of them is that when you're, when you overlap fibers and this is, I only know this because I would come home and say, did you know? And she would look at me and go, yeah, uh, yeah that's what I'm doing with the thing. I know that. That you're not actually mixing the, you're not mixing the pigments. You're not mixing the colors. They're sitting next to each other. And when colors sit adjacent to each other, they have all kinds of weird effects in your eye and your brain. They assume some of the properties of the complement of the color. And, and, and with weaving specifically, they begin to act very much like pixels because you make smaller and smaller dots as the, depending on the overlap. And you can make patterns with those, with those pixels. They don't use that terminology. But a lot of the early design that computer scientists had to figure out to make pixels work on screens, like anti-aliasing that, that early Macs used to do to make text look curved when they didn't have the resolution to curve it. Those are things that the Weavers discovered a long time previous to that, that they had to do with the colors they were working with. So now the, the, the dynamic in my house of like what sort of color work is happening on a, on a loom at any given time versus what I know about it and what she knows about it, uh, has, it's, it has it's changed our hobbies for the, for the better. Well, it actually makes a little loop back to the Jacquer loom and the beginning right. of programming. And there's the pixel. Thanks for that little closing the loop. Great book. Thanks for the great talk. Thanks, Kevin. One of the reasons I'm trying to think of, you know, why, you know, you showed some of the archaea that have in some way color perception. And then, you know, humans have clearly have color perception. But, you know, as we, you know, talked about with, you know, the World War II bombers, they're kind of, they were, the, some of those were better at actually doing their job if they saw less color. But do humans have all this color perception for danger avoidance? Is it for hunting? Do we know where that you know, is it so you don't eat the red berry or the red apple, as it were? One of the ways that color scientists amuse each other after a long, <laughs> after in the bar at a conference is to, is to go through the different evolutionary stories. But what's it for? Though? Why is it? Why is it there? It has to convey an evolutionary advantage. It has to convey a reproductive advantage or a sort of sexual selective advantage. And in fact, this is, you know, the color of the morpho butterflies. This thing was the thing that Darwin and Wallace argued about. Was, was specifically, they were talking about, well, why do these things have color? It doesn't convey an advantage. In fact, it may, it may confer a disadvantage. There's some research on guppies in mountain streams 
in South America, and this is sort of famous animal coloration research, where the, the guppies will have different color. They're the same species of guppy, but as you move down the stream when they're a shrimp that will eat the guppy, they have different colors that either are more appealing to a guppy, potential guppy mate, or less appealing or like less visible to the shrimp that are trying to eat the guppy. And there's this balance. And so what you really want if you're the guppy is to have colors that show up in the wavelengths that the guppies see, but not in the ones that the shrimp sees, right? You know, some of the good theories are that colors, we see colors because it's, you know, for sex, like all kinds of other stuff that we do that doesn't seem to have any other purpose because it's, you know, it's important. But yeah, there's a possibility that it's because we're trying to find fruit in the, in the forest, you're, the mm -hmm. fructivore hypothesis. You want to see the red fruit against the green trees. It doesn't really make that much sense because there's a lot of green fruit and like a lot of our primate ancestors eat the green figs. So how does that help? You really want to be able to see shape. There's a hypothesis that it's a way to be able to better perceive emotional state. There are certainly primates that when they're the peak of their fertility, then parts of their body will change color. When we unconsciously convey emotional state by changing color of our skin, if we have, the, if we have a skin color that you can see that, not everybody does. The range of human skin color is actually not that wide. It sort of goes from you know, pink to brown with a little bit of red shade in it. But within that, there's, there's a lot of dark light variation. But still, you can imagine like being able to see if someone was blushing would convey, confer some evolutionary advantage potentially. Mm -hmm. These sort of stories are really, they're, they're hard to tell and they're hard to listen to because there's no real way to go back and, and unpack the truth of them. As you say, it clearly has some value. It has an informational value, but people who see a different, human beings who see a different range of colors have other abilities as well. This is part of the long term. It's one of the arcs in the book. Is this the long term war between form and color? Since at least the since at least the Greeks, a conversation about this mostly false dichotomy between whether form was more important, the shape of things, which you really see by light and dark. Really, that's what we really mean, unless you're feeling them, um, or the color of things. And and that really um, came to a peak with sort of the art criticism of the late 19th century, where there were people who were arguing, in fact. Uh, People are arguing that color was more feminine and therefore less, somehow less, like a nonsense, you know, completely culturally colored with a lowercase c argument, right? But until, really until the Renaissance, if you had a statue, it was probably painted. You, if, you, mm -hmm. if it wasn't painted, then you didn't, that just showed you didn't have enough money to get a proper statue, essentially. And it wasn't until like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci both essentially said, actually, we don't want to see any color on this stuff. It's just the form. That's the pure that's the purest thing. But that, that conversation is a truth and beauty argument. It's not a informational or, or reproductive or evolutionary value. It's you, you, you don't have beauty without truth or truth without beauty. The form and color are your two sides of the same thing. One of the things that's interesting to me is you, you talked a little bit about the Pixar thing of how, you know, they're actually in a way using a, I guess you would call it like a psychochromatic effect to create a new color, right? But is the electrification of, have we, has it been studied as electrification of societies and emissive technologies like televisions and computer screens and now cell phones? Is that changing at all the way we see color? Do we know? Is it, is it, is that affecting us? There's a, there's a pretty good case to be made, and some people did study this. For example, in the case of the dress, I go back to this because I covered it because it was a big deal because it really changed a lot of color science too. The, the fact that that happened meant that there were sort of years of research that followed trying to figure out what the internet meant. name of the dress. Yes. yes. And there's, some, there's a case to be made there that one of the reasons that that image created a, a rigidly bimodal color illusion Right, one where you, like once you saw it one way, you didn't switch. Whereas with like illusions of form, is it a, a woman or a 
duck or, or rabbit or a duck or is the cube forward or back those kind of illusions they're bimodal but you, but when humans look at them we tend to we tend to switch back and forth right we're right. like oh it's forward oh it's back and, the, and one of the weird things about the dress meme was that once you once your brain decided which color you stuck with it you couldn't you sort of couldn't see the other one after you look at it for a while you can't i've started to be able to Anyway, that's another one of those things where I got totally messed up when I look at it now. But the point I was trying to make was that th there's a case that one of the reasons that happened was not just the nature of that color, but that people were seeing it on emissive screens. You know, everybody mm -hmm. saw it on their phones or on their, you know, on their screen at work. Nobody saw the, the reflective image, the picture. There wasn't one. It was a picture taken with someone's phone. So clearly that had something to do with it. That's right. Does it, would it have happened with the actual dress at a party? And the answer that's almost certainly no. And part of the reason why is that if you were seeing, well, actually I might, might reverse myself on that, but if you were seeing that dress in real life, then when the thing happened that probably happened with that image, which is the person walked through a shadow, they would then walk out of that shadow and your brain would correct. Your brain would do the calculation and go, oh, no, 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 it wasn't that, it was this, it's this. I'm looking at it now and I can see it in different circumstances and I can right. subtract the illuminance, the, the illuminance from the object and I can do all the work of color constancy that I need to do. But in fact, some of the research on the actual dress, there's a researcher in England who got, who, who bought it <laughs> thing, and, and put it in a, in a gallery room and then illuminated it with LED lights, red, green, blue LEDs, so that you can adjust how much of each of those lights you're shining on it, but it still looks like normal, still looks like normal light. So it can, it, if you and I walk in the room, it seems like it's being lit by white light, but in fact, it's actually sneakily not white light, it's some adjustment of colors with the LEDs. And they were able to make people see that dress any color they wanted. Oh, wow. And in fact, it works on, on art too, like even art that you recognize. You can make any art do the Cathedral Rouen, you know, Monet's Cathedral Rouen. It can look like, you know, all any time of day. That's the sort of thing where you start to go like, oh, maybe there's not a, it becomes the province of the philosophers, whether that object has a color, that surface has a color, or whether it, that color is created in a dialogue with our eyes and our brains and our cultural experience. Right. And I've certainly heard, you know, when people talk about, you know, paintings that were created before electrical light, that you know, if you're looking at them in anything other than sunlight or candlelight, you kind of aren't seeing them the way the artist intended. And it's an interesting question. I, one of our other questions is, you know, when humans can't colonize other planets orbiting other stars, you know, how will the local sun's unique light spectrum affect their perception? So, you know, it's kind of this all time. Right? So one of my favorite things, yes, trying to figure out, in fact, there are researchers who study exoplanets who both use the color that reflects off of those planets to try to understand their atmospheres because different atmospheres will show different colors as we look at those exoplanets, even the little tiny specks of exoplanet that we can see. But also, yes, trying to figure out, okay, well, there are, there, these are planets that have a different, have an atmosphere with a different composition than ours. So that changes what kind of light gets through. They have a sun that's different than ours. So it's emitting a different spectra than ours is. Let's say there are plants. What color are the leaves? What, what's that version of chlorophyll? What's that version of the pigments that are, that are doing photosynthesis? Are they absorbing all of the light they can so they would look black to us? And in fact, if, we, if it was a human standing there versus some, whatever primate thing, whatever lemur-like thing that evolved on that world would have eyes that evolved under that sun in that atmosphere and would see those colors in a very different way. They would have a different range of visible spectrum in the same way that on Earth, a bee or a fish or a snake has a different visible spectrum than a human being does. And you have to take all that stuff into account. They take it into account on the, on, on the cameras on the rovers that are on Mars right now. Perseverance has cameras on Mars that are designed to take into account both what, what the image that they see would look like to a human standing there, 
would look like if it was illuminated by Earth light, what look like what it would look like if it's illuminated by Mars light. And this is sort of metaphor because they don't the researchers don't think about it this way, but they'll say this is what it would be, what it would look like to a Martian. Interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of that one day that we had ominously last year in the Bay Area when the fires were so bad that the sun basically didn't come up and everything was orange. And uh, the kind of hilarious part of that was that when people use their iPhones to take pictures, the iPhones color corrected all the orange away. So the only way to take a picture of it was with like earlier, you know, you know, non non-software corrected things. Xander, if the iPhone couldn't take a picture of it, it obviously didn't happen. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, I want to wrap up. You know, Thank you so much for this. But the last question I want to ask you, the last time you were here, uh, Amir, seven years ago was with Proof and now with this. And uh, what is the next first principle-based project that you're going to teach us about? Am I booking space for 2028? Yeah. No, <laughs> I know it took me a long time to write, Xander. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. This is long now. This is, it was short. Yeah. Okay. No, I, was, I just wanted to, are you working on a new project? Yeah, I, I have, I have some <laughs> notions. Yeah, right. That's, I know. That's all I was trying to ask. Jesus, man. Um, yeah, I have some notions. There was a Virginia Post wrote a really good book called The Fabric of Civilization that sort of was like, I was hoping that there might be a textile weaving thing there. And I think she wrote it. So maybe that's not going to happen now. I spent the last year covering for Wired covering COVID-19. And the thing that I've gotten really interested in there is how to understand how science works and how science does it and what science is supposed to do. Because so much of what has happened this pandemic last year has, I think, come down to not being able to explain what, what we know, how we know it, how scientists know it, how sci- what scientists don't know, and then how to, how to say that to people who, who don't have the same scientific background or knowledge. And the very basic philosophy of how trials work and how science works and how scientists come to know things has gotten, uh, I've been really compelled by it. I've written a few things about that. And I, I think maybe there's something there too. I, you know, I don't know. I've been staring at a screen every weekend for a while. I might um, just go look at some colors outside in the garden for a while. Right. <laughs> Please do. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It, it is, it's a pleasure and I'm glad to be back. Adam's talk makes me think back on biological anthropologist and naturalist Peter Warshaw's seminar in O2012, Enchanted by the Sun. This talk was an emotional one for us. Peter was the science editor for the Whole Earth Catalog and longtime friend of our community. When he gave this talk, he had a cancer diagnosis and he died within the year. His friend Alan Weissman, another Long Now speaker, said that the thing that Peter was most grateful for in his last year of life was the opportunity to share his life's work with us on color, patterns, and the evolution of life on Earth. It's a talk that expands our understanding of light and color beyond just humanity following Peter's philosophy on the role of the naturalist. My job tonight is kind of the naturalist task, and I've never really defined it, but I thought that you should know that a naturalist is someone who tries to empty their mind of a human-centered universe, of human-centered thoughts, of human-centered agendas, and instead tries to work towards a Gaian way of thinking about the world, in this case, a guy in aesthetic. At the same time that you're doing this, you're, of course, aware that you're human, and you can never really easily escape the human worldview as you're doing it. So it's kind of a tension that you create as you walk in the Savannah or in the Sinaloa and Thorn Scrub about how to look at the world, not from your point of view, but from the point of view of any creature you're walking by. The other thing a naturalist does 
is to try to think of images as color patterns in a slice of time. In other words, we don't know exactly what color others are absorbing and receiving, and if they come in blobs or patches. But the naturalist considers all species in space-time as equally beautiful. And after looking at that species for a while, and some people, like myself, fell in love with birds and then jaguars and then eight-ounce squirrel, while you're looking at them and considering them beautiful, if you don't think they're beautiful, then you think of how you colonized your mind with a certain critic's adjudication to say that this thing is somehow not as beautiful as it looks. So the sun pours forth photons. They take about eight minutes to get to the Earth, and you can only know about them when they entangle with matter or flesh. They are nevertheless envisioned both as waves and as particles, or wavicles, by primatic applied scientists. And they're ultimately mysterious to those who have and dwell in a poetic imagination, be it painters or poets. And so there's always been this kind of metaphysical connection between art and science that very few people talk about. And that's the, when you say the energy of a painting, what do you actually mean by the word energy? But if you ask what is light, you get into the same confusion as a scientist. This was noted, by the way, by a Tang Dynasty art critic named Hyo So, who called that energy qi. And so what we're seeing right now is through our ignorance of what energy is, that Western thoughts and Eastern philosophy are actually coming together. This is important because you'll hear in this talk the difference between the pragmatic and the poetic. And those two organizations of thought between the pragmatic and poetic are really what is the dialogue that's going on about light, color, and life. Peter's talk delves deeply into the way colors and light are at play throughout nature. Visuals play an important part in his talk, which the podcast format isn't as well suited to illustrate, but he returns to the idea of beauty and the way time shapes the visual world. What we're seeing is that images are colors in a slice of time. They're not eternal beauty. Here is a Surat painting, redigitized. I think that's going to be a new form. People are going to have very thin screens on their walls. Say, well, I'd like to see what the painting looked originally. Then they'll press a button and say, oh, this is, you know, 20 years later. What happened to the painting after bacterial and dust got it? And this is what it looks like now. And which is the painting that is most beautiful? And so we see that we're already having a new understanding of does restoration make it more beautiful? Or as the Japanese would say, it's called wabi-sabi, does time make things more beautiful? And as the bowl gets older and more shiny and a little chipped, does that make it less beautiful? And this is the second crisis, trying to understand what do we want to call beauty. My mentor, a guy named Frederick Jameson, big postmodernist, said to me, all artwork is an installation. You just have to decide how long you want the installation to last. <laughs> Van Gogh wrote a beautiful letter when his brother, Theo, pointed out that he was using lakes to kind of die instead of oil paints and that they weren't going to last. And indeed, they've changed his paintings drastically. And he wrote back and said, my paintings are like flowers. They'll last as long as they want. And when they're gone, there'll be other paintings. And so he had that same sense that 
this tension about what is beautiful, what is deteriorating, is not eternal beauty. My daughter asked me, she said, how do you get from being attractive to being beautiful? And they're actually, that's where that desire comes in. Hope is an, is an attribute of beauty, contingency, the freedom, the noticing of freedom, like in this poll, is, a, is part of beauty. So to go from attractive to beautiful requires certain little steps that have yet to be mapped out by biologists. This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, become a member, or watch the talks and see our show notes, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talk you heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. Our work would not be possible without you. Before you go, a small ask of our listeners. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience. The way you can help nurture this movement towards long-term thinking is by rating the podcast on your platform of choice, leaving a review, or telling a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of Long Now. Big thanks to our production team. Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.